This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Been a little while since we ventured into the ranks of collegiate athletics. Uh, well, Bill Hillgrove was the most recent one, the voice of the both Pitt Panthers, but also the Pittsburgh Steelers. Then you've got to go back to episode five, Josh Maurer from UMass, also the Pawtucket Red Sox, and then uh, episode two was Andy Demetra, uh, then of South Carolina, now of Georgia Tech. Today we go back to the college ranks, where we're joined by Virginia Tech's John Laser. Welcome back into Play-By-Play Cast, everybody. It's the podcast for Play-By-Play Guys, about Play-By-Play Guys, by, I guess, a Play-By-Play Guy. Uh, (laughs) My name is Joel Godet. If you would like to get in touch with the podcast, we would love to hear from you, and I love when people do reach out to us and let us know that uh, they're listening, they're getting something from it, it's enjoyable, uh, helps pass time on the treadmill, drive to work, what have you. Uh, You can find us on Twitter at PXPCast. You can find me on Twitter at J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T at Joel Godet. uh, Or you can use the hashtag PXPCast. Get in touch with us as well. Or uh, if you're creative enough, uh, you can shoot me an email too. My inbox uh, is always open. John Laser is uh, an interesting guy. And I'm I'm stoked we could have him on the podcast. Uh, John and I go back to 2000 eight 2008 I think when I was uh, a young intern with the Salem Avalanche uh, now the Salem Red Sox in the Carolina League John Laser was the voice of the Myrtle Beach Pelicans at the time which was really cool because that wound up being a a job that I ended up getting a couple of years ago uh, and being in Myrtle Beach which uh, if you've never been to a minor league baseball stadium Really cool, and if you're coming up in the ranks of minor league baseball, I know Scott Kornberg has that job now, but uh, when the day comes where Scott moves on to eventual bigger and better things, uh, working in Myrtle Beach, premio, highly recommend it. Uh, If if you can put that on your bucket list, big fan. But John Laser, uh, I met back in 2008 when he was the voice of the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, and uh, I was uh, a peon intern with the Salem Red Sox or Salem Avalanche at that point in time, and uh, John's just got a magnetic personality, uh, has that that swagger that carries from that personality into his on-air persona, and is a guy that has really climbed and worked his way up in this industry. And he'll talk a lot about that, but a guy who I think has worked off the top of my head in 10 different states. There's a video that can uh, you can find on the Virginia Tech Athletics website or on their, their, uh, their, their YouTube page where he actually can list them in order as well, which uh, is impressive in some regards. Because 10 states, I, I feel like I would flip a, a few here or there, or, or, or mix a, a few here or there, but he's got them all down. Uh, he started in minor league baseball back in 2003 with the St. Cloud River Bats, made his way to the St. Paul Saints, the Yakima Bears. Um, as far as uh, baseball teams go, there was also a stint with uh, commercial radio that we'll talk about here on the podcast, but uh, eventually then wound up with uh, the Altoona Curve and the Myrtle Beach Pelicans and uh, Montgomery Biscuits and Richmond Flying Squirrels and 
then got involved collegiately, Charleston Southern and uh, VCU. And John is kind of the – John, I think, is an interesting role model in this industry for somebody who really wants to be a play-by-play announcer and just takes the path of I'm going to go do play-by-play wherever, however, whenever. Uh, and if that means I've got to bounce around and climb the ranks of minor league baseball and and call games on the side for – probably not a ton of money, um, but just experience at various colleges and put things together and create opportunities and all those things that eventually leads you uh, to where he is now, which uh, was replacing uh, Bill Roth at Virginia Tech a year ago. And uh, now, as we'll talk about in the podcast, uh, really coming into his own as the voice of the Hokies as well. So uh, fun to have John on, interesting to have John on. And I think for a lot of guys, especially that are still up and coming in this industry or guys that are in college and, and are looking uh, for a kind of path, I, I know that's, and we've really kind of figured it out on this podcast. If if, if you didn't know before, there is no path; it's it's not replicable. But uh, John is a guy that uh, paid his dues and cut his teeth and went where the industry took him, which was all over the place. And I think is uh, interesting to to see and study from that standpoint. Where did we start this podcast, though? Uh, with all of that being said. Uh, well, current events, uh, John and I taped this uh, a week ago, maybe a week and a half ago, and uh, it was coming off the battle at Bristol for uh, Virginia Tech when they took on Tennessee at Bristol Motor Speedway. So, of course, out of curiosity, uh, John Laser, uh, how did the battle at Bristol go from a broadcast perspective at a NASCAR stadium? Yeah, Bristol as an experience was, I think, markedly different for fans to the team to our broadcast team in the sense that from an experiential standpoint for the fans, it was unlike anything that they had ever experienced. I think the folks at Bristol did an exceptional job of trying to coordinate so many moving parts, which were literally in the thousands and make it as strong of experience as possible. So I think from that aspect, the event was definitely viewed as a success from the team's perspective. There were some things that were lacking in terms of locker room space and the fact that they had to shower in portable trailers and things like that. But I think they actually walked away with a with a lifetime memory from a broadcast perspective it was a very unique challenge even for the complexity that can be college football broadcast sometimes on the road when you walk into stadiums that don't have the same types of technical advantages that we have at least in Blacksburg when you're talking about multiple dry pairs and things like that so essentially we walked in back in may when we did our first site visit and there really wasn't anything that could be used by us for a broadcast including including a serviceable booth um so the people at bristol were very accommodating in terms of looking at alternatives because quite frankly they just didn't have enough broadcasting booths for everybody so eventually they built a wall in the middle of what is a three-tiered television uh, broadcast booth. And we split that with the instant replay team. So we essentially had half a booth, which made things a little bit challenging. It wasn't wide at all. Uh, It was three tiers deep, which you don't normally see. So I wound up broadcasting the game standing on a staircase. So my Hall of Fame broadcast analyst, who's quite a few years more advanced than I could sit down and be a little more comfortable, but we also did it through about an inch thick glass And when you took your headset off without the effects in, despite the fact that there were 157,000 people there, we felt like we were in a closet. So uh, it was very interesting. We got there three days early to set up, whereas normally we'd get there the afternoon before. And uh, we needed every bit of that time to uh, to make sure that we actually got on the air with the the full package of effects and and nuances that we like to have. How far away were both you and Allegretta? (laughs) 
Uh, Allegretto down on the field for me uh, would be difficult to say. And honestly, I, you know, looking at it when we got there, I'm like, oh, that's not so bad. I can see the field. That won't be much different than at Lane Stadium because we're so high here too. And it's usually a binoculars type situation. But then once the players got out there, you're like, oh, that's not good. I think Allegretto <laughs> had to at least have been 100, 150 yards away from us. Um, the biggest thing was we lost the ball a lot in the air for whatever reason, when it was thrown more than 10 yards or so, or when it was punted, you just lose it due to the vastness of the environment. So, uh, we got through it and we were right next to ESPN. So we were cheating off their, their 27 different monitors and angles that they use, uh, and the two that we have. So, you know, all in all, we obviously wish the game would have been more competitive, but from every other angle and standpoint, we came away pleased with it. Cool. That's, uh, it seemed like a, Seemed like an interesting challenge in a lot of ways, so I was curious to kind of get the, the quick overview of how that went for you. Um, if, if we can, can I back it up and go way, way broader uh, and, and kind of widescreen here with you? And that's when you got the Virginia Tech job, obviously, uh, I know it was a new challenge for you because you had been so long, I think people thought of John Laser, a baseball broadcaster, so to speak. Um, and the question that people that meet a broadcaster for the first time I think always like to ask is what sport do you like better uh did you consider yourself a, a baseball guy and did you want to be a I mean were you looking at being a major league guy and and, and Virginia Tech was the right fit at the right time or did you want to go college broadcasting kind of take me on the the route of of what your thought process was um last couple of years you know, it's interesting. You go all the way back. I think, Joel, we all do this a lot to the beginning, and then we see where we are now, and we wonder how the dots connected <laughs> to get to that place, and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, particularly you know, when you look back at, at what your original aspirations were. And for me, I got into broadcasting. I was a little bit you know, misguided without a lot of direction in college, and, and I think that put me at somewhat of a disadvantage in terms of some of the other guys that have become – you know, my friends throughout the business and, and have broadcast in the same leagues and at the same levels and venues and those things. But, you know, my story was a little bit more jagged in that uh, I really didn't discover that I even wanted to be a part of this business until I was about 21 and got an internship at KFN Radio in Minneapolis. And at that time, yeah, I just wanted to be a part of it. I wanted somebody to tell me that I had the ability where it might actually be something that I could get paid for someday. And I really, despite the fact that I had confidence when I got on the, the air and different roles you know no one really goes out of their way a lot to tell you that so when I first got those results it was just okay I'm happy to be here I want to do anything and everything that I can and you know I had always played baseball growing up I think that was probably the most accomplished and I say that very generously by the way of my own athletic abilities but that was the one I played the furthest uh, but baseball in the beginning of your career just becomes the avenue where you can actually financially get by because in the beginning, a lot of time you're paid by the game and they have the most games in a season. So you're never going to get by as a high school football announcer. And what happened with me was I got into baseball and I loved the the lifestyle of it. I, I loved the family of it. I think it, it filled a void to a lot of, in a lot of ways in, in, in my life at the time. And, and it felt like family and it, and it felt like a place that I belonged. And then on top of that, I felt like I was able to get fairly comfortable in terms of the style of broadcasting baseball and, and that fit my strengths. But there was always a part of me that missed the the faster pace of football and basketball. And I, and I think it was a misgiving at times, the, you know, the last five or six years before I got here to Blacksburg, certainly the other sports have been put on the back burner, but you know, the early years in my career, I did high school football and basketball. I, I did some smaller level college 
football and basketball. And then at one point actually did division one with Charleston Southern uh, football and basketball. And, and then when I got involved with VCU, I, I think that many people expected, and I appreciate their, their thoughts that they felt like I had the ability to get to the major leagues in baseball. And then I felt like I had built the relationships to do it. But like a lot of people, I had stagnated a bit in Richmond and, and was stuck with the Giants system behind a, a Hall of Fame guy and John Miller, who's not all that old, a guy in waiting, Dave Fleming, who a lot of people know now nationally is, is so very talented. So it was a level of frustration. And I started to look around and explore and, and and uh, for whatever reason, the Virginia Tech opportunity came up in a situation where I had already established a pretty good network between Richmond and Blacksburg and the pieces fell into place and fortunate enough to get the eye of Whit Babcock, the athletic director and, and Chris Ferris at IMG, who, of course, you know very well. And, uh, you know, it's really developed into something that's fun for me because in baseball, I had gotten fairly bored. I knew the technical setup, you know, I knew the ins and outs. I felt very comfortable and, and coming here, I feel like I've gotten to learn again. And, and remarkably, after all the years in the business, so to speak, there were so many things that I didn't know because it's done so very differently um, in the college environment, the college arena, and not just in the athletic arena, but the broadcast arena. So that's been great. But, you know, there is a big part of me that misses baseball and hopefully I'll close the circle here in the not too distant future and, and do it year round. Like has always been the ultimate goal. Uh, how much did baseball or how did baseball make you better? Um, both as a baseball broadcaster, but then now in your current position, do you look back at it and say, these are things I did in baseball season that are applicable to what I'm doing in football? Well, I think the, the greatest way that baseball shapes you is that it teaches you not just different aspects of broadcasting, but it teaches you the different aspects of getting along and creating relationships with people from different areas of the country, people of different countries in general. And it also teaches you that you need to be diversified in your own skill set. I think one of the strengths that I had, and I always try to foster in the, in the younger people in our business and people that have interned for me or that I've come across is you need to do everything. And the greatest way that I think that I forged to where I was in baseball was you know, I was also the travel coordinator and I took a great amount of pride in the smallest details in terms of the name placards in the press box and carrying my own trunks and being able to engineer my own broadcasts. And, and also, you know, learning the game to a point where I could sit in a room with scouts who do that for a living, just that, and, and not necessarily be the dominant opinion in the room, but certainly one that was listened to. And, and that taught me to gain a level of comfort around people that comprise who you're covering and the teams that you're associated with. So I don't think you have that opportunity. I, I know that if I had started in college sports, I wouldn't have developed that ability because you're just so shielded from the players and a lot of times the coaching staff because college football certainly is big business and it's very protected and as are the, the kids. And I say that accurately. I think the kids that are the athletes, you don't have the same access to them that you do in minor league baseball in particular. So for me, it was more of a personality shaping type thing than it was a professional development. And, and it's been interesting back to my previous response, looking at the dots that were connected, you know, you, you sometimes look back and go, I wish I would have gone there instead of here. Or I wish I would have taken this opportunity or sought this opportunity to, to better myself. But ultimately 
you know, I think all the things that make up your personality now allow me to do this job, which is so much more than just calling games on the radio. You know, it's walking into smaller and larger venues and representing Virginia Tech, which has a vast presence in this area of the country in, in live speaking scenarios on television uh, in the academic world, which was pretty foreign to me um, and, and be comfortable doing it. And, and baseball kind of blends all those things together over the course of a season. Let's talk about Richmond, if I if I can. Um, I read an article where you said it was it 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 felt historic when you guys started that. Um, how rewarding was that whole experience, those couple of years, uh, and being able to kind of help build a brand and um, I, I obviously put you in a position to be where you are now. Well, I think that's everyone's great great aspiration is to leave their mark on something and. You know, minor league baseball, you can get so lost in the lack of relevance, I think, throughout the course of a season, particularly if you're just in a place that's done it for 100 years and, you know, you're just a blip on the media guide. He was here from, you know, 1998 to 2004. So Richmond was a baseball starved area that unfortunately did not have a recent track record of success with their stadium and their relationship with their affiliate. And it was a clean slate because it had dwindled over the final years to a point where there was a lot of animosity. Um, there was a lot of anger about baseball and just a lot of combining the two when they didn't really need to be, um, if that makes any sense. And so we came in and had the opportunity to, to make things fresh again and to kind of carry the lessons that we'd learned with other franchises. And when I say we, it's the staff that we had coming in, Chuck Domino, Todd Parney Parnell, Lou DiBella, guys that have been so successful in other places throughout minor league baseball. And what I shared with them was a kinship in the fact that we didn't want to just do it. We didn't want to get it online. We wanted to do it better than anybody else did it. And I felt like in a lot of ways, including the marketing aspect and the broadcasting aspect, not necessarily our on-air talent, but our on-air presentation and, and the, the relationships that we had with the local clusters of stations, including our own flagship, were the best that were in that league, certainly, and I think could be expanded upon out to a lot of minor league baseball. So there was a lot of pride in that to see the reaction from the community in Richmond's, you know, not New York city, but it's certainly a, a relevant and major city in its own right. And one that's blossoming in a lot of ways was just wholly rewarding. And I think there was a bit of sadness on my part, the last couple of years and frustration, Joel, and the fact that we couldn't ultimately get the stadium, the new stadium to the finish line, which would have allowed us to take the initiatives we've started to another four or five levels higher uh, and really left that mark that I wanted to. So I, I think we accomplished a ton and I'm very proud of that. And we'll hopefully always look back on that brand and that baseball affiliation in Richmond is something that, that we were a part of, but unfortunately we weren't able to ultimately accomplish all of my goals, which leading back to here was one of the reasons that I chose to, to move on to, to other opportunities. You mentioned a couple names in there with, with Chuck and, and Parney. Um, and I mean, obviously, you you've been tied to them for years back through Myrtle Beach and uh, and and Altoona and kind of all through that family. Um, and I think people would kind of know you as a and maybe you don't look at yourself this way, maybe you do. I don't know. Um, but like a good networker type of person, and I hate that word, but it's a relationship builder type person. Um, what's gone into making you good at that? And I know that sounds like a weird question because sometimes it's just inherent. Um, but how do you how do you how how have you been a good schmoozer for lack of a better word? <laughs> uh, you know what's <laughs> funny about that is that I think that and thank you for saying that. But um, 
what's the greatest way to network, I think, is to not care about networking and just be a normal person, yeah. I think, is, is the greatest way to do it. You know, I, for years, I'd go to the winter meetings and I'd see some of the more aggressive types that would be in their suits and, and just be charging around the lobby or the bar or restaurant or workroom or whatever, just trying to shake any hand that they could or introduce themselves to anybody that they could. And then when I got later along, you know, I'd kick myself for not being more outgoing and willing to do that. And then when I actually started to become involved with teams and, and saw it from the opposite perspective as somebody who those younger people were trying to seek out, I recognized that there really never was any impactful interaction that I had with anybody that was doing it that way. And the people that I remembered were the people that were just normal guys. I, I say that all the time. And, and it's the relations to the players, uh, to the baseball side where, you know, they don't want to come in and, and break down the two, one fastball and, and things like that. They just wanted to talk about uh, their lives as a whole, you know, what they appreciated away from the game. And I think I've had that. This is kind of what I was. I always said I was a jack of all trades, master of none athletically. You know, I'm not a terrible golfer. I can bowl, I can throw darts, I can play a little pool, but I'm not great at any of them. Uh, so I'm just kind of that, that guy that blends in and becomes part of the group. And, and I had a lot of success doing that. And, and like I said, when you move around to a number of different places, like I did academically, and you see the, the darker side sometimes of life, it, it makes you empathetic, I think, to a, a lot of things that people are going through. And, and unfortunately, the most successful people a lot of times in baseball and no longer talk about the players, but the people that get lost in it a lot of times have some of those aspects of their lives that need understanding. And I found a kinship with Parney, certainly in that regard. And, and to some extent, Chuck Greenberg and Chuck Domino and Lou and those guys, because we were all looking for something and, and we seemed to find it together and, uh, and our personalities blended. And then they were for, they were kind enough to endorse me for lack of a better term for the relationships and the networks that they'd already created. And uh, I started small by earning their trust, and then, then they pushed me out to a wider net, and, and I earned the trust of those people that just allowed that to grow. And, and that's kind of how it starts organically, I think, for people without necessarily focusing on it. That might not be the best advice for people because in a lot, in a lot of ways – uh, there was luck involved in that for me. And it's sure. not something that you can teach. I think it's just having a genuine personality and, and genuinely caring about the people that you're around and, and just wanting to create connections with people. And that those don't have to be professionally beneficial. And a lot of times you won't realize the ones that will be. Um, and certainly that was the case with uh, the opportunities that I've gotten, at least recently. Well, first off, don't sell yourself too short because Shane Beamer said you're a great golfer. So, well, no, he said I hit the ball a long way, which I do. Okay, fair. Uh, it's not consistently <laughs> a long way in the direction in which I'm trying to hit it a long way. And that's something Shane and I share, by the way. <laughs> nice. Uh, I love how you like deflected that and then drove the bus over. So that was good. You just, oh yeah, yeah. Well, he's not here anymore. That's so true. If he's listening down to Georgia. Uh, you can come back up, Shane, and I'll take you on. Well, you got to find him a new hobby if he's listening to the play-by-play podcast. Uh, you never know. <laughs> fair enough. Um, going to Virginia Tech and learning a new culture and learning a new people and a, a new history. Uh, obviously, they're familiar with, with Bill, and, and you and I both know Roth really well, uh, and he'd been there for 30 years. Uh, how do you go in there, and how did you go in there learning to uh, be their voice and their guy and kind of – absorb that culture in, in what's a really short window? Well, I think you have to develop a certain sense of confidence about yourself and what you're capable of while trying to maintain a level of humility and respect for those like Bill that had come before you and then and those that are still around that 
were raised on that and, and are familiar with that. And you don't necessarily have to change the way that you do things on the air, but you certainly have to be respectful of the fact that people are going to miss certain aspects of it. And for me, on a much smaller scale, I did that when I went to Montgomery and followed a guy by the name of Jim Toko, uh, whose name a lot of broadcasters will know because he was somewhat innovative in terms of the call of the game website. And that has led to STAA and some of these other industry websites. Uh, and he was just beloved there. He was not a guy that ever got to the, the major leagues and, and is not in the business anymore. But when I got there, there was kind of a stark resistance and, and I handled it badly, I, I feel like. And, and my reaction to it was, well, wait a minute. I'm, you know, I'm great. And the people in Myrtle Beach loved me and the people in Altoona appreciated me. What, what is wrong with these people uh, in Montgomery, Alabama? And, you know, years later, uh, when I reflect on it, I, I recognize that I didn't do it the right way. So, you know, there's another example of previously not not doing things the way that you would have liked and having another opportunity. Well, I had that opportunity here at tech on a much larger scale and in a much grander fashion. And I'd like to think that I handled it pretty well. And, and you do that by coming in and being deferential to, to those that have built the opportunity that you have, first of all, but also recognizing that you were hired here for a reason. Uh, this is an athletic program and department that are moving towards the future. And I think in a lot of ways needed modernizing because they were starting to slip a bit in terms of their nat national scope and reach. And I felt like I had the tools, a lot of those from Richmond uh, and what we were able to do in creating things and pushing the envelope, so to speak, in a number of areas that I could help with. But you can't just come in and kick down the door and say, now we're doing things this way. Uh, it needed to be slow in the beginning, and it was. Uh, and we followed the playbook quite a bit last year. Uh, and I think our listeners this year, for those that have checked out the broadcast, would start to recognize that now now we're starting to create, now we're starting to push it forward and, and make changes that people are more ready for uh, after having a year to kind of adjust. And the fact that Justin Fuente and Buzz Williams are both relatively new and they're pushing it at a more frenetic pace than we are has allowed us to slide under the fly under the radar a little bit in that aspect while we're giving them things that we ultimately think that they'll like and enjoy and appreciate about our coverage of the program and I had a lady come up to me the other day and it's a woman I know well because she comes to our coaches show every week and she's in her 60s and she said John you know I can really tell it's subtle but you've kind of made this thing your own and she said it with a smile so I knew she was relatively happy about it and uh, you know that was that was really gratifying for me and and, and it's been fun to do that, to try to shape things. And, and now there's another interesting dynamic because Bill has come back to Blacksburg and recognized that potentially leaving um, wasn't actually what he wanted. And, and now we have the opportunity with him working for the university itself to blend our radio vision with the communications department, which of course, Jill, you're familiar with at Syracuse and we're nowhere in the vicinity of what Syracuse is and has accomplished, but uh, it's kind of fun to now work with him. And, you know, I had dinner with him the other day and, and talked about things we could do and how could we could incorporate young people and how we could incorporate ourselves. And so it's just a, it's a tremendous feeling right now of uh, opportunity on so many different fronts here that it's invigorating. And a lot of times in this business, I think you lose that. And I, I certainly have along the way at times. When you, uh, your interview at tech, I thought was interesting too, um, because they had you do a mock game with Mike. Um, what's it like doing a mock game, knowing that your future is on the line? Uh, <laughs> I guess sitting in front of a TV and, and calling a game that's not real, so to speak. Well, I'll tell you honestly, and this might be the first time I've answered this this way because I've talked about this a lot, and 
I didn't go in thinking, okay, I need to call this game that has already happened and it needs to be the greatest call of my life. I was smart enough and had conducted my own searches for talent and been a part of a number of them in the past to recognize what was going on. I knew that when I came to Blacksburg that they enjoyed the visit and I knew that, uh, you know, it was a reality that they wanted to take a chance because it was, I hadn't called big time football ever. I hadn't called football on the radio in six years since I was at Charleston Southern. I could tell that Whit Babcock was a guy that prides himself on finding uh, people that aren't necessarily the obvious choice. Buzz Williams is a perfect example of that. Guys sure. that uh, that want it badly and are going to push for it. And then I could tell that he sensed that in me. I, you know, it's one of those things where you can just feel a connection with somebody. But I could also tell that when you play a game at this stakes, there has to be a certain level of backside covering. And I knew that that's what that exercise was. So when I came down here, I knew it wasn't, hey, I need to call this game better than bill did and they actually had the apples to apples comparison because of course he did call the actual game (laughs) the year prior i knew that what i needed to do was come in show confidence in myself not feel out of place in the booth we actually did it in the booth our booth at lane stadium in an empty stadium Uh, and i just needed to not fall on my face because i knew that's what they were looking for not that they wanted me to fall on my face they were just looking to see if i would so i just came in and just kept it very close to the vest didn't try to get out of the box with touchdown calls or turnover calls or things like that and just tried to make it flow as smoothly as possible and uh the simple answer and it was terrible i mean it was it was really a ridiculous exercise (laughs) that didn't benefit anybody uh but ultimately led to where we are now so i'm happy we did it but uh you know i approached it quite a bit differently than people probably expected me to did you know what was coming like did you how how much did you study the actual game or did you prep it like you were prepping a regular game well what's interesting again and i'm probably letting you be a little bit behind the curtain when i shouldn't but (laughs) yeah you know what we go back years so uh, you know i had been told by chris ferris um what section of the game we were going to do, which was going to be the first quarter of of the game at Ohio stadium. And so, you know, he gave me all the old, the flip cards and the notes and all those things. And then, you know, I think I was smart enough to recognize again that IMG who I actually worked for rather than Virginia tech was on board. They were ready to hire me or make me an offer at least. And, you know, Virginia tech wasn't quite there. So I could tell that IMG wasn't exactly thrilled that we had to go through this process because they wanted to be done with it. You know, they managed so many schools and had other things that they needed to get to. This had taken the better part of the summer and all of that. So when I got here, you could tell that the exercise itself hadn't been mapped out all that well. You know, Mike Burnup was here and wasn't too thrilled about it, I don't think, quite honestly. And uh, they had a DVD of the game, but it didn't actually work. Uh, when I got here, it hadn't been communicated which section of the game was going to be. So they told me that we were going to do the fourth quarter uh, instead of the first quarter, which I hadn't gone back and, and watched. Um, and then the DVD that they had was just awful on the screen and you couldn't make out any of the players. So I remember saying, is that shy McKenzie? who's one of our running backs and, and Brandon Forbes, who's our local general manager here goes, he goes, it might not be, but you're going to make it sound like it is because again, it's just preparing you. If there was a hailstorm and you couldn't see exactly. Yeah. So I'm like, I, you know, I grabbed him and I was like, Hey man, is this one of those tests where you're trying to see how I handle adversity? He's like, no, this is just a very poorly run and poorly executed exercise. And I go, all right, well, if that's the case, if you have internet in here, why don't I just pop up the tape that I was actually watching on my laptop and we can and we can string it to the tv in the booth and you know go back to your minor league engineering experience to be able to do that so 
so we did that. We went back to the first quarter. We compromised, and I said, well, why don't we do the first quarter like I was expecting, and then at that point, we'll do the fourth quarter, and everybody would be happy. Um, so we did the first quarter, and all the IMG folks kind of looked at each other and said, you know, is that good enough, good enough? And they're like, yeah, it's good enough. And then Brandon drove me. We looked at houses, so I left <laughs> feeling pretty good, feeling pretty good about where I stood, and they offered me the job a couple of days later. Um, you said that, uh, if I can jump to basketball, you said that, and you mentioned Buzz, uh, and working with him and you said he challenges you um and i had seen where he had said i don't know if it was your third or fourth game you said that uh you asked a question and he said that's the first good question you've asked since you've been here um walk me through how that struck you initially um but then also how working with those types of coaches has made you a better broadcaster and the types of things you've done uh, to better yourself so that that doesn't happen <laughs> Yeah, you know, and it's funny because I knew that when he said that, Joel, he, he liked me. I knew that initially he did. And I knew from some of his other assistants that I was the guy, and uh, he was part of the interview process that I had chosen, or he had chosen, excuse me, because he had kind of done some of those things. What he does is he likes to sting you like that and see how you react, to see if you're going to break. And he does it with his players all the time, and he does it with his managers all the time. And, and I love it because – he's generally right. And he's generally doing it to, to get you to a better place. And I knew that he was doing that because he saw potential in me. And, and it was a point of frustration at the time because football is so all encompassing at this level. There's just so much pressure on it. Uh, and in my first year, we definitely felt that. And it had only been a week prior uh, or a couple of weeks prior that Frank Beamer had announced his retirement. And all of a sudden there I go from five weeks in, you know, figuring out our formats and, and our technical setup and, and things like that. And last year I was actually our own broadcast engineer to trying to focus on basketball. And what I was essentially doing was just relying on natural ability and very limited amount of time spent prepping the, the broadcast. And it wasn't that my questions were terrible or they were, you know, idiotic or things like that. It's just that they weren't very precise. And that's what Buzz likes. He doesn't want to say, well, how's the team feeling, you know, going in and generics and, and cliche type questions. He wants you to actually dive in because he thinks then his answers and his time, and he's a huge believer in the efficiency of time. He believes those five minutes are better spent actually educating the fan base or those listeners uh, what they're doing, whether that's night to night or in the grand scheme of things. And I think he felt like I was capable of much more and he was right. So to answer your initial question, I walked away when my original reaction was F you, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, who's this guy? Uh, you know, I'm over here handling Frank Beamer's retirement and, and we're talking about a game against VMI or whoever it was, you know? So, uh, and that lasted for a couple of days. Uh, and then I, look, I thought back on it and I'm like, you know what, he's absolutely right. And look how wise he is. And, and, uh, and I could tell that we were kindred spirits because he could sense that my, that I was distracted and basketball was not a priority, whether that was justified. And I felt like it was in where I was being pulled by everyone else around me besides the basketball program. And so I took it upon myself from that point forward. I said, you know, I'm going to, and this is another great piece of advice for people. And I said this a couple of times afterwards, because obviously that was on the air and people picked up on it and they're like, well, you know, is Buzz unhappy with you? What's going on with Buzz? And I said, and I said, no, but what Buzz recognizes is that his job is to lead this basketball program. And that's a tremendous challenge coming from where he is in the ACC. It's not his responsibility to find the time to forge a relationship with me. It's my responsibility to try to find a way to forge a relationship with him. And from that moment forward, 
buzz is big on those that are around you know you see that in basketball a lot who's at practice every day and so I went to practice every day regardless of what time of day that was whether you know a lot of times he would adjust body clocks for nine o'clock games and he'd practice until 11 30 at night and I'd be there and when we go on the road he he has a gym uh, workouts he calls it the bit get better crew they go at 6 30 in the morning I go with him and then we come back and, and he leads chapel and he actually leads it and I started going to that and it's uh, it's one of the most entertaining things you've ever seen in your life is Buzz Williams leading chapel, but it's also very impactful. And, you know, then it's one event to the next. It's, you know, the gym to chapel to breakfast to shoot around to, you know, film to everything. And wouldn't you know it, lo and behold, you know, a month or so following that exchange, you know, I'm one of the guys, I'm one of the team. And in their case, the, the term they use is family. And I'm one of the family and Mike, Mike Burnup was already there. So by the end of the season, we were having so much fun, um, just reaching new heights with that team that they hadn't been to in a while and, and seeing the joy that that gave people around the program, but more importantly, people within the program, uh, was so phenomenal to me and so rewarding. And just now fast forwarding to a couple of weeks ago, as we get ready for season number two, Buzz does what he calls family portrait day, where he has all the coaches and managers and trainers. And in our case, broadcasters come with their families and children that they have them and significant others and, and pose in their Sunday best for, for family portraits uh, that he posts around the facility. And, uh, you know, we were part of that this year, which was so gratifying. Cool. So, so, uh, yeah, from that moment, it, it was really kind of the launching point to to what I really feel will probably be a lifelong relationship between the two of us. That's awesome. Liz, uh, I, I said uh, we'd do a half an hour, and we are at 32 minutes. So uh, I will let you go and uh, get yourself prepped for uh, for this weekend. But I uh, appreciate you spending the time and uh, lending some insight and some knowledge and, uh, and doing this. Absolutely, buddy. Anytime. Great to talk to you and hope things remain well. John Laser here on Play by Playcast, and I'm glad we got into that a little bit uh, towards the end of the podcast. But uh, it's hard, especially in college. Pros, yes, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there's also uh, there's definitely uh, part of it that goes to, to to pro sports teams, but certainly in college, it's hard replacing guys that have been in one spot for a very long time. John Laser uh, stepping in for Bill Roth when he uh, went to UCLA a year ago, and and having to kind of win fans over I guess uh, and now he's in year two we talked about making the job his own uh, y- y- those are difficult things to do uh, and getting people to to, <laughs> to like listening to you I guess for lack of a better word uh, I'm, I'm sure you run into that in Kansas uh, with Bob Davis having just retired you're going to run into that uh, in a lot of different places because it- it's habit people like listening to people don't like change uh, <laughs> I think that's a natural human instinct um, so it was interesting to kind of pick John's brain a little bit about um, how he's grown into his job and making that job his own. And I like that little anecdote about the the fan that came up to him at the radio show and kind of with a wry smile said, "Hey, you know, we can we feel like you're, you're starting to morph into this, and and you're starting to feel the job, and the job is starting to feel you, and that becoming one uh, was starting to happen." So it was kind of neat to see uh, that perspective from John Laser as well. If you want to listen to John Laser, they are off this week, the Virginia Tech Hokies. You can catch them next on the air next Saturday when they take on UNC. And then when they head up to the Carrier Dome October 15th, take on the vaunted Syracuse Orange. Uh, So that's uh, how you can catch uh, John Laser throughout Virginia and uh, across the Virginia Tech uh, IMG Sports Radio Network. Uh, Many thanks to Lays for joining us here 
uh, I, I emailed when, when we emailed about doing the podcast. I think it's Lays L A Z. I think is the official. It might be L A A S. Uh, his name is L A A S E R. I'm not sure how you how you officially type Lays. Um, L-A-Y-S, like the potato chips. Um, but uh, many thanks to John Laser uh, for joining us. Uh, Laser's been a great guy to talk to. Um, been a great guy as, as a sounding board a couple of different times throughout my career. Uh, I spoke to him at length when I wound up taking the Myrtle Beach Pelicans job several years ago, and uh, we spent some time together at the uh, NSMA National Media Awards uh, weekend down in Salisbury, uh, North Carolina this past year as well. So it was great to kind of catch up with him and uh, see somebody that I knew right off the bat and uh, spend some time together uh, down in North Carolina. Uh, so check out John's work. If you haven't yet, uh, listen, you'll learn something, uh, and uh, and you'll hear a guy who knows what he's doing. And uh, it's always great to hear those things and, and point people in, uh, in those directions. All right, much more coming up on the podcast. They're playing the go-home music, so that means we got to get up on out of here. If you enjoyed the episode, please uh, feel free to rate us, throw some stars, uh, type something in about how you liked it or didn't like it. It uh, helps iTunes knows that people listen and uh helps on the lists and all I, I i don't really get into the technical stuff but i, I know it, i know it helps itunes likes that uh so go ahead and rate the podcast if you enjoyed it uh subscribe download all of those good things all help us out hit us up on twitter as well and uh, we'll have another guest coming for you next friday morning right back here on play by play cast see ya. Yeah.